Well, today we, uh, we continue our journey uh, working through the Gospel of John, and today we find ourselves in this remarkable story that is found in John chapter 4, the passage that was just read for us. You know, as you, or as we, uh, read through the life of Jesus, uh, it's common, very common actually, uh, to, to find him having a conversation with someone. We, we just saw that even in his conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus really liked to talk to, to people, and people uh, had a tendency to like to talk to him. And today, uh, we find ourselves in another one of those conversations. But, but this one just so happens to be the longest conversation uh, ever recorded in the Bible with Jesus. And it also just so happens to be with a, a woman who is a social outcast. Uh, it's a great story, and it truly reveals the heart and character of Christ. See, what we're going to find today is that this woman sitting at this well with Jesus, she was actually stuck, caught in deep, deep sin for, for a long period of time. And yet, what we're going to see is that Jesus will not scold her. He, he will not throw words of condemnation at her. Uh, no, what we're going to see is that he actually makes this decision to woo her to himself. He's going to offer her living water. And the point of the story is this. I'm telling you right from the beginning. It's simple today. That only Jesus can satisfy the thirst in your heart. Only Jesus can satisfy your thirst. Not your children. Not your boyfriend. Not your spouse. Not religious tradition, not money, not sex, not friendships, not popularity, not your advancement. Only Jesus can satisfy the thirst that exists in every single one of our hearts. See, every other person, every other thing in this world actually has the potential to become a savior to us. It has that capacity, that potential. But all of these potential saviors will only ever leave us disappointed, only leave us empty. And that's because they were actually never designed, never intended to give us what only Jesus can give us. Not too many years ago, uh, there was this really fascinating article in Business Insider magazine. If you're not from the West or from the States, you may have never heard of that. But it's a pretty famous entrepreneurial magazine called Business Insider and in that magazine, it talked about the story of a man named Marcus Person. Uh, maybe you've never heard of him before. If you have, then you've played the game Minecraft. Uh, Marcus Person is the founder and creator of Minecraft. He was 36 years old when he did that, by the way. And a major company said, we want that game. It was growing in popularity. A lot of the parents are kind of smiling because you know your kids have it. And you spent a lot of money probably on all the additions and add-ons. Because of that, a big company came to Marcus and offered him a staggering $2.5 billion for the rights to that game. That, if you're Korean, that is, in Wan, that is three with 12 zeros after it for a video game. Okay? And so he sold it. 
second largest sale of a video game in history. And following that sale, um, it talks about this in the article, that he had to make decisions. Like, what am I going to do now with all this money? And so the first thing he did was he purchased a $70 million mansion. That's what he did. And then it says, after that, he just, he didn't know what to do. So he, he literally says, I just spent my days living the dream. But then interestingly enough, a few months go by, almost a year goes by, and he hops on Twitter. And he writes this. The problem with getting everything is that you run out of reasons to keep trying. Hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, now able to do whatever I want, and I have never felt more isolated. See, you can try to find satisfaction outside of Jesus, but everyone else, everything else, will fail you. You, too, will end up lonely, angry, maybe scared, bitter, guilty, and always wanting more. And so in light of that, we turn to John chapter 4, hoping to find an answer for our satisfaction. And we are going to look today at Jesus and this woman at the well. And in looking at Jesus this morning, I hope to show you a person that will give you true life. A person who brings genuine satisfaction. A person who will bring refreshment to your soul. At least that's my aim today, to convince you of that, to show you that. And so let's now go to the well this morning. Verses 1 through 6 give us the very important context for the story. And so we'll begin this morning by considering that context. Starting in verse 1, I'll read it again. It says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So the situation we have in front of us is that Jesus now, his ministry has begun uh, and he is growing in popularity. We talked about that a little bit last week, that he's now baptizing more people than John. The crowds following him are bigger than John the Baptist. There's quite a buzz. There's talk around this person of Jesus. And so what does Jesus make the decision to do? Well, we see what he normally does in the Gospels when he draws a crowd, when people are surrounding him. He gets up and he leaves. <laughs> That's what Jesus does when he gathers a crowd. See, for now, uh, he doesn't want the, all that attention. And more than that, he doesn't want any conflict with the Pharisees. He doesn't want any division amongst the religious leaders. That time is going to come later. But for now, he just moves on. He leaves the place where John the Baptist is doing ministry. He leaves the crowds and he's headed towards Galilee, which is where he'll do a good majority of his earthly ministry. And John writes in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. Interesting language there. Uh, you could very easily skip by that if you're not careful. He had to pass through Samaria. This tells us that this was actually God's will. 
We're told later that Jesus says to his disciples, I do nothing unless the Father tells me. And this is the pattern of Jesus' life. He gets away to be with the Father, typically isolated, alone, on a mountainside, maybe on a hill. He prays, and then he moves. He prays first, then he moves. So according to John, probably what happened is Jesus gets alone with the Father, prays, and the Father tells him, go to Samaria. I know you're on the way to Galilee, but you're going through Samaria. And so he's obedient, as always, and he goes. There's something for Jesus to do in Samaria. And so he gets there, and then verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Old Testament story in the book of Genesis. You can read about that later. Now, now, if you don't understand the situation with the Samaritans, uh, you'll think that all of this context is just geographical details, and you'll miss the intensity of this story. I don't want you to do that. See, when Assyria, the nation of Assyria, when it took over the northern kingdom of Israel, we know Assyria attacked the northern kingdom, they won, and when that happened, they made this interesting decision. They said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to deport many of the Jewish people who are living in the northern kingdom, And we're going to replace them with the Assyrian people, with our own people, right? And we're going to teach them a new way of life. That's actually what happened. And so what happened during this time, you can read about this in the Old Testament narrative. What happened was there was a lot of syncretistic religion taking place after Assyria conquered and invaded and then dwelled in that land. Meaning there's a lot of mixing of religions, right? Jewish culture... Jewish, you know, Judaism, you know, worshiping Yahweh, mixing with Assyrian gods, right? And then they're worshiping this, this mix. And because of that, uh, the Samaritans, who become known as the Samaritan people, they now have their own temple. They build their own temple. More than that, we know that they had their own sacred text, right? They had some other writings, but they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. That's it, okay? So the Pentateuch. Uh, and not only that, they also made a decision, we now refuse to worship with the Jews. Right? So there's like, imagine in their building, no Jews allowed. Okay? So consequently, you can imagine now, there's a lot of tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. The Jewish people in return now, you can imagine, they're receiving all of this kind of hate and everything. Now they are saying, we hate you too. We hate the Samaritans. And actually, you can read about this in their text, Jewish text, that they actually viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds, okay? Because they're a mix of people, Assyrian plus Jew, half-breeds or mudbloods, if you like Harry Potter, okay? They saw them as heretics. And if you were a conservative Jew, okay, very devout in your faith, you wouldn't even walk through Samaria. It wasn't allowed. You walked around it. That's how bad it was between these two people groups. Now, I probably should have put a map on the screen, but you'll have to use your imagination with me, or maybe you already know the map of Israel. But geographically, what you have is Jerusalem to the south. Okay, it's the south. 
And then above that, you have Samaria. And then to the north of Israel, you have Galilee. And so Samaria is in between. Jerusalem, Samaria, Galilee. And so we know this, like people have done this. To, to walk from Jerusalem to Galilee, roughly, if you go through Samaria, took like two to three days to walk. It's far, but people did it often. It was a regular thing. But if you had to walk around Samaria, it's more like a six-day journey. So two days or three days would become six. But for the Jews, it was worth it. They disliked the people that much. They saw them as that dirty, that unclean. We can't even put one foot in Samaria. So we need to have this in our minds as we enter into the context of the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Jesus now is in Samaria. He's entered into this town. And then verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus was tired. It's a reminder of his humanity, by the way. He got tired too. And then we're told it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is now sitting behind or beside right at this historic site. And that's very significant, by the way. It's not that significant that it's Jacob's well. I think it's significant for another reason. You see, wells in ancient times, places where you go and draw water, they were places where entire cities were built around. You would find a natural spring. Actually, this word well is more... It's better translated as spring, like a flowing spring, but there is a well there. And people, nations, would build their cities around these springs, these wells. And so because of that, we know that it was usually in the city center or just outside of the city center. And so people would gather around these wells. I tried to think of the best way to explain this, and the best thing I can come up with is think of wells like modern-day coffee shops where you would go and, and mingle and meet with people. And so in the Bible, when you read about Jacob's well, you can think about Le Cafe across the street, okay? Or if you're one of these people, Starbucks, all right? All right? Okay? Business was done at wells. Mingling was done. But most significantly, and it's interesting, as I was doing a lot of research on this story, a lot of people haven't made this connection, and maybe you haven't as well, but I don't think a lot of people have seen this, but wells were also and most known for a place, being a place where marriage proposals took place. You can go back to Genesis chapter 24 to see an example of this with Abraham finding a wife for his son Sarah, or sorry, his son Isaac, who marries his wife. Yikes. <laughs> or, I'm going to get canceled if someone cuts that, right? <laughs> Abraham finding a wife for his son Isaac. Or we also see Moses, for example, finds his wife at a well. So it was a common place in ancient times, even amongst Jewish culture. It's a common, common place to meet women because... Women were almost always the ones who were drawing water from the wells. And so, coincidentally, women are hanging out there. Guess who else hangs out there? Guys, right? 
It's like a club or something, right? Women are allowed to free. Guess who comes? The guys, right? So yeah, we just are doing business here while you're drawing water, right? Well, then a little final detail here is given. We see it's the sixth hour. I don't think it's a coincidence at all that that detail is there. Uh, it's very purposeful. There's intentionality. The sixth hour, it means it's noon. It's 12 o'clock. And what that indicates to us is that this woman who's about to come at noon to draw water from this well was an outcast. Okay. How do I know that? Well, I know that because historically we know that people draw, women draw water in the mornings or in the late evenings. Why? Because nobody goes outside at noon in the Middle East. It's too hot. You wouldn't go out to do hard labor, especially. Not, not the females, right? They would not do that. So she's coming at this time to the well at noon. Why? To be alone. Perhaps she wants to avoid people, or she knows that others want to avoid her because she's been outcasted. Maybe it's a combination of both. But here she comes to draw water, not for herself, but to draw water for a man that she's living with who's not her husband. And this is who Jesus decides to have this really long talk with. Longest conversation ever recorded with Jesus. It's beautiful. And it's in this conversation and I want to show you three different ways that Jesus satisfies. Three ways that Jesus satisfies. So first of all, we're going to learn that Jesus satisfies by giving us or offering to us living water. Jesus satisfies by offering to us living water. Right quickly, the slide is going to change. It says this in verse 7, I warned you. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is here alone, we're told. His disciples have gone to, to grab lunch. They go to the city. It's going to give him a couple hours, actually, we know, from where Jacob's Wall is to where the next city is. Give him about... Uh, about two, two and a half hours or so, if you're going to walk an hour, walk back, and then get lunch in that 30-minute span. So he's got some time. And we know that Jesus is thirsty. He's tired. So it's just practical. It makes sense to ask for water. But again, we also know that what he's doing here is crossing barriers by asking her in the first place. First, Jews don't go to Samaria. I already told you about that. Second, even if you had to be in Samaria for whatever reason, you would never, ever ask a Samaritan person for a drink. Why? Because you were not allowed to drink out of their water vessel. Okay? It was seen as unclean. It was dirty. And then third, okay, another layer to this, it gets deeper, is that rabbis, teachers of the law, which is Jesus, rabbis don't typically talk to women, period, okay, period. That's the culture. It's the expectation. 
only if there was like a, like a desperate need or something, an emergency. Rabbis don't talk to women. So he's in Samaria. That's a negative. He's asking for a drink from a Samaritan person who has a Samaritan vessel, and he wants to drink out of it. Strike two. Third, this is Jesus, and he's making a decision to talk to a female. Wrong, 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 culturally speaking. So Jesus crosses all of these lines. And understand what he's doing. He's crossing racial barriers, historic barriers, and religious barriers. Crosses them all and says, give me a drink. Would you please give me something to drink? And notice as well, this woman understands what he has just done. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? See, she knows what he's just done. She's like, hey, what do you think you're doing? What's going on? Probably actually asking him, what's your agenda? She's probably skeptical, actually, because of her past experiences with men, maybe at the well. And so she's like, what do you want from me, with me? And then we see Jesus turn the conversation just like he did with Nicodemus. He goes from the material to the spiritual. She asks him a material question. He answers in the spiritual. I love it. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, given you living water. I love that Jesus doesn't just have a predetermined script for sharing the gospel. I always think about that. He always has something unique to say. He speaks uniquely to every person that he encounters. It's the same truth, it's the same gospel, but it's personal to each person's story. Honestly, when we read through the gospels and life of Christ, he is just a master at turning any situation, any topic into a gospel conversation. It's something that I personally strive for in my own life. I believe that it should be the exact same way for you, turning anything into a gospel conversation. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So we see at this point, clearly, This woman does not understand what Jesus is saying. Going back to Nicodemus, you kind of see this pattern now. It's intentional in John 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, Jesus, how can I get back inside of my mother's womb? He didn't understand. And now she is like, how can you give me water if you have no vessel or tool to draw it with. I'm looking at it. The well is too deep. What are you saying, Jesus? She actually asked him, are you greater than our father Jacob? Like a a hero of the Jewish faith. She's confused. Now at that, Jesus could have made a decision to be demeaning. Right? 
who are you to talk to me, right? Because remember, this is a female responding to a male who's a rabbi. She's not allowed to really speak to him either. So he could have been like, how dare you speak to me that way or question me, give me the drink. Right? He could have demanded that of her, actually. And that would have been culturally acceptable. Today, like, the females here, you're like, I'd slap that guy. No, like, that's not the culture, right? That, that's not how it works. You have to kind of get your, get your mind there. He could have been demeaning. He could have been condescending. He could have authoritatively told her what to do. He could have been like, what's wrong with you? But he's not that way. Jesus is caring. He's patient. He's kind. He's ten tender to her. And so he just nudges her further. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus gives her good news. It's good news for anyone who's thirsty, anyone who's looking for satisfaction, that if you go to Jesus, if you embrace him, you will never be thirsty again. He says that there is this joy, that there is peace as we drink from the well of his salvation. Listen, even in the midst of pain and sorrow and difficulty in this fallen world, in Jesus, we have a well of joy, a well of salvation. Amen? And then it's interesting the woman responds just as you might expect her to respond. She says to Jesus this, Sir, she hears about it, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It's good news for her, right? I don't want to be thirsty anymore. That sounds good. And also, I got to come here at noon every single day to get water. I don't have to do that again. Give me that water. So she wants this living water. She's thirsty for it. But then Jesus responds in an unexpected way. She responds in a way we expect. He doesn't. He says, all right, go. Call your husband and come here. Come back. Yikes. Let's be clear. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. He knows her situation because Jesus knows everything. <laughs> all right, this is the Lord the king, sitting here at the well. And he knows that he is exposing her situation with this statement. He knows that he is going after her idol. And in doing this, Jesus is going to show her, Jesus is going to show us, that he only not, not only does he satisfy by giving us living water, but also Jesus satisfies by providing us the best of all relationships. And that's number two today. Jesus satisfies by providing us the best of all relationships. So Jesus says, go and get your husband. And that is quite a, a turning point in the conversation, isn't it? But, but the point here is that Jesus is now, he's getting more specific. He's, he's after her heart. Jesus wants her heart. And he knows that what has held her back, what's been a stumbling block 
in her life is relationships, particularly relationships with the opposite sex. So Jesus goes directly there. He points it out. So the women answered him. The woman answered him, I have no husband. You can sort of sense here, I think we're meant to, this quick and cold response coming back to Jesus. Go get your husband, come back. I have no husband. This is surely a sensitive spot for her. And so Jesus responds back to her, oh, I know. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five of them. And the one that you now have, in other words, the one that you're now living with, is also not your husband. What you have said is true. Yikes. Right. Ouch. Right. Pretty intense. But I, I should also say that here, in this context, as you read it through, um, please understand, Jesus actually is not coming at her out of anger. And also, in this one-on-one -on -one conversation, this is not Jesus trying to shame her here as well. Again, Jesus is going after her idol because he loves her and he actually desires a relationship with her. Jesus here is actually attempting to woo her and to invite her into the best of all relationships, which, by the way, adds up and makes sense in the context, and it would for every single Jewish person reading this text, because again, where are they having this conversation? At the well. This is the place where proposals happen. And this woman has never had a proper marriage. She's never had a fulfilling marriage. And so now Jesus is calling out to her like he's calling out to every single one of us. He's saying, hey, I know your situation. I know your story. I know you've had five husbands. It didn't work out. You've made a mess of your life, a mess of things. Right now you're living with this dude that's not your husband but here's my response. Come be with me. Here's your proposal. Here's the right proposal, the proper one, the ultimate one, the fulfilling one. Come be fulfilled with me. Be married with me. See, see Jesus is showing her her sin. He's, he's exposing the, the emptiness that's what's within her to her here. He's showing her that there is something broken in her and with her life, that there is something within her and her story that needs to be healed. And simultaneously, he's showing her now that he has the means to restore, that he has the means, again, to give her life, to give her living water. Jesus' longest recorded conversation in the scriptures is with this woman. The woman with five husbands. The woman who's now living with a man who's not her husband. And this reveals to us that there is more mercy in Christ Jesus than there is sin within us. Well, then finally, I want us to see that Jesus satisfies by leading us to true worship. Jesus satisfies us by leading us to true worship. At a first glance in this text, 
the following verses don't really seem to make a lot of sense, actually. Uh, there seems to be a dramatic, major shift in the conversation. But I believe a deeper look at this text reveals what I believe to be this extremely profound connection, actually. It's, it's exciting, right, to me at least, right? So look at this with me now, starting in verse 19. The, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, right? Makes sense because he just called her out, right? You've had one, two, three, four, five. Oh, yeah, and you're living at home. Someone who's not your husband. I know that, right? So, oh, sir, I perceive you're a prophet, right? You know things. <laughs> you're able to see into current realities. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Samaritan. But you say, Jew, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Remember, there's two temples. So she's saying, our people used to worship on, have always historically worshiped here. Your people have worshiped down south in Jerusalem. So where's the right place? You're a prophet, so tell me the answer. So it's interesting. It looks like it looks like she's trying to shift away, kind of shift things off of the current reality, right? He's just called her out. So now I have a question for you. Oh, hey, where's the right place to worship? I'm not certain of the motivation for this from her. Um, most scholars are not, actually. So is like she trying to change the subject, right? Because she's embarrassed, she's ashamed. Or is she genuinely curious about this debate? Again, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that, interestingly enough, Jesus has no issue talking to her about worship. In fact, he sees it, this topic, as extremely relevant in this moment. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. You see, a fulfillment problem, a satisfaction problem, is always a worship problem. Always. When you and I look for joy, look for peace, look for contentment, look for satisfaction elsewhere but Jesus, that's a problem of worship. And that's why I believe that Jesus is willing to engage her on this topic of worship. And so verse 21, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So Jesus points out here that worship is not about a locality, but a reality. That worship is not about a location. He says, you won't be worshiping on this mountain as your fathers did, and you will not be worshiping in Jerusalem. He says, the time is coming when that's going to take place. You won't worship in either places. And why? Because worship is not about a where, but about a who. Worship is not about a place. Worship is about a person. We need to remember, we've actually already learned this in John's gospel, that Jesus himself is the true temple. That he is the place where you and I go to meet with God. And now he's echoing that message here to her. He says, the hour is coming. 
That's a reference to his death, by the way, every single time in John's gospel, that Jesus will die on the cross, giving us access to God through his resurrection and through his ascension. And in that, in that resurrection, through his death, through the ascension, you will be able to worship God truly and freely, regardless of who you are, but also regardless of where you are. It's not about a place. It's about a person. And then Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, uh, there is a lot there. Uh, honestly, this could be an entire other sermon, and almost was. I was close this week to changing plans, but that would bother a lot of people, okay? Especially our curriculum writers and my plans to preach on Lazarus next Easter. It'd throw it all off, okay? So I couldn't do it. I was disciplined. That's a real thing, by the way. It's all mapped out. We actually did do a series, though, on worship last year. Okay, so if you're here with us, you may can recall it. We went to this text. If not, you can go back to YouTube or iTunes, SoundCloud, shameless plug. Okay, listen to that series for more insight on this. But the bottom line here, in our, for our context today, bottom line here is this. Worship is a response to the revelation of God. That's what he's saying. That worship is actually a response to the revelation of God. So we learn from him here. I think there's this tie. A satisfaction problem is a worship problem. Worship's not about a place. It's about a person. And now we see worship is a response to the revelation of God. In other words, for those of us who are followers of Jesus here in this this place, we do not worship the God of our imagination, but the God of biblical revelation the God who has made the decision to to make himself known to us. And look, when when you see him, when you understand who who God is, the only proper response is to worship him, to praise him, to worship him, Jesus says, in spirit and truth, to worship him with all that we are and all that we have. And I love here that we see that the that God, the, the Father, is, is seeking worshipers, Jesus says. He's seeking out worshipers. And who is he seeking in our text? Wrap your minds around this. This woman. He's seeking out this woman, a most unlikely candidate for true worship, right? If you're going to line up all the people and say, man, I am seeking, I'm looking for True worshipers. People are going to worship me in spirit and truth. You know, line up a people. She would be last in line. But Jesus goes to her. He sits down with her. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus here in this room today, you need to know that the Father is seeking you. 
to be a worshiper. Listen, he is not seeking us to become well-behaved moralists. That's, that's not what he's seeking. Like, hey, I'm seeking you out so that you can do all these right behaviors. Right? No. He's seeking worshipers. He's seeking passionate, devoted worshipers. People who find their joy, their peace in him and him alone. So Jesus gives her this lesson on worship. And then he says, she says, excuse me, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this certainly puts a stamp on the conversation, doesn't it? I love texts like this in the Bible. You hear this from a lot of like agnostics or atheists or, you know, New Testament scholars who aren't Christians. You can hear this a lot from uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses even or uh, people in Islam. They'll say, well, you know, Jesus, yeah, he's a good prophet, a good man. He, he never claimed, though, to be God. <laughs> I who speak to you am he, the one called Christ, the Messiah. Okay? Christians can read at least. So this certainly, it puts a stamp on this conversation. The woman says, hey, you know, I know you're a prophet, and here's the thing about us. Like, we're looking forward to the Messiah. We can't wait for him to come, even the Samaritans, right? Because we know that even though the Samaritans were separate from the Jews, they did have expectation for Messiah. They believed that one greater than Moses would come. And so now, in that, Jesus looks at her and says, yeah, that's me. I'm here. It's just beautiful. Jesus reveals himself so clearly here. He, he, he's saying to her, I know, again, I know you've made a total mess of your life, but I am here for you. Will you follow me? The Christ is here. The Savior sitting with you. I will give you living water. I'm the best of all relationships. I, I can lead you into true worship. It's in me. Come, I am the Christ. Well, just after that, perfect timing, the disciples come back. And apparently, as they're walking, they see actually Jesus with this woman talking. And in this, we see this great impact of the conversation Starting in verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he, Jesus, was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They're smart. Okay, they know their place. The disciples come back. They've picked up lunch. They've come back to Jesus, ready to eat their kebabs and falafels. And they're wondering, hey, if you go to Israel, you eat that. Okay, it's real. <laughs> they're wondering to themselves, why is Jesus talking to this woman, this Samaritan woman? Again, this is a boundary that is not to be crossed. And so actually it says they marveled at it. In other words, they were baffled, astonished. How can he do this? 
How is he allowed to do this? Who is this? Next week, we'll unpack Jesus' response to them, okay? Because he knows they're thinking this, by the way. So we'll unpack that. But for now, let's focus on her. Let's look at the woman's response. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's interesting to me, man, John is such a good writer, by the way. So interesting to me that John gives us this little detail. It's, it's, it's perfect. He says that she left her water jar. The very reason she came to the well in the first place to grab water for a man who's not her husband, the guy she's living with, she leaves that water jar behind. It's probably his. Maybe this is John's subtle way of telling us that she came and received the water that she really needed. I don't need that water jar anymore. No longer thirsty, because Jesus had actually satisfied her her soul, given her everything that she ever longed for and desired. Or maybe, maybe, another side of this could be, maybe she leaves behind the jar because she's just totally overwhelmed by Jesus and the fact that she has actually found the Messiah. She's the one who found the Messiah. Either way, we're told that she leaves that water jar and she rushes back to her town and says to the people, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Come and see this man who told me everything about me, all I've done, who I am, and what he's come to do for me. I found the Messiah. This woman who was the outcast of society now becomes the evangelist. And at that, revival we see actually takes place. The people, it says, they went out of the town. In other words, they stop what they're doing. And they go to Jesus. They were coming to him. This woman and the people of the town, this town in Samaria, come to Jesus. They come to follow the Messiah. Later, we're actually going to see Jesus says that the Samaritans were a harvest that had been gathered up. He says that about them. And that's what we're seeing take place here in this story. They're a harvest. And they have been gathered. So let me just say this. As we cap the story, that's how the story closes. So let me just say this to you and I today, as we close things up, as we wrap things up today. You know, actually, you and I, every person in this room can identify with this woman. All of us. Because listen, we were all, we were all outsiders. We were all thirsty. We were all blind to the truth. We were all immoral. None of us were, were true worshipers. And then we met the Messiah. And now we too are saying to the world or meant to say to the world, come and see. Come and see this Jesus who satisfies fully and forever. So today, the the question for all of us in this room, those watching online, it's really simple today. Here's the question. Are you thirsty? Are, Are you longing for more in and out of life? If so, 
And today we point you to Jesus. See, when Jesus is placed on the cross to die for our sins, right before his death, it takes place in John chapter 19, we'll get to this later, right before his death, Jesus cries out and in agony, he says these words hanging there, I thirst. And at that, the scriptures tells us that there was a Roman soldier standing nearby. And in mercy, he takes a sponge, he dips that sponge in sour wine, he lifts up that sponge, he places a branch on that sponge, and he lifts it up to Jesus. Jesus takes a drink of that sour wine out of thirst, and at that, Jesus says, he drinks, and he says, it is finished. He says, the work is done. And then it says, he dies. You see, what, what happened on the cross is that Jesus actually traded places with thirsty humanity. Don't miss it. He, he died for unworthy people so that you and I might be brought into his love. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we might drink from the well of salvation. So this is the point of the story. The, the woman at the well, here's the point, it's clear. Don't look to anyone to give you what only Jesus can give you. They didn't die for you. Don't look to any human relationship to satisfy the, deeping, the deepest longing of your soul. They didn't die for you. He or she did not die for you. Don't look to your career to satisfy you. It certainly didn't die for you. Don't look to pleasure. Don't look to religious rituals, but look to Jesus, for he did die for you, and he promises to satisfy you. Listen, Jesus was thirsty so that you and I, so that you and I never have to be thirsty again. So today, let's choose to throw away our water jars. Let's choose to leave behind our water jars and let's go to Jesus. Let's look to Jesus. Let's choose to go to the well of the Savior and drink from the life that he offers. Amen? Let me pray for you.